There wasn't much musically that Leon Russell couldn't do, along with recording hit songs for himself like Tightrope and Lady Blue in the 1970s. Russell died Sunday in Nashville at the age of 74. Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie, led North American box office for the second week in a row. Mr. Doctor, it's strange. President-elect Trump has appointed Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus as his chief of staff, and Trump named Stephen Bannon as chief strategist and senior counselor. Hundreds of shoppers fled. From the Crossgates Mall in the Albany suburb of Gilderland, after one or two shots rang out. A California deputy sheriff killed while responding to a call about a suspicious car and person. A new study suggests tattoos change people's perceptions of men who have them. In a survey of both genders, Polish researchers say women considered tattooed men as healthier and strongly masculine, but not more attractive. A strong quake in New Zealand turning deadly. Wildfires continue raging across several states in the south and. Southeast. Season two of Red Oaks premieres on Amazon. It's the radio cast with hosts Dave Vincent and Dave Fink at WPH5.TV. Welcome back to the Tucson, Arizona studios of the Handball Radio Sportscast. It's Dave and Dave with episode 11 coming up next. President-elect Trump says Hillary Clinton's concession call Tuesday night was lovely and obviously a tough one to make. She couldn't have been nicer. She just said, congratulations, Donald. Well done. He spoke for 60 minutes on CBS. Monday's back. We're on every morning. I'm no morning person. You can really tell who is a morning person and who is not. Okay, not a morning person. This is where we do our morning show. I'm the darkest depths of the forbidden zone shows can be successful simultaneously it's showtime welcome to the dave and dave radio cast it is episode number 11 how have you been doing these past couple weeks since the last radio cast uh, watch any good tv vote for, <laughs> vote for your favorite misogynist you know uh anything extraordinary uh, i mean okay so last tuesday about one week ago was yeah. decision night i had to choose between Jack Daniels and Wild Turkey. Mm. And that's a yeah. that's a tough decision to make. The good news is we're going to have a, a hottie as a first lady. So mm. that's what I took out of that. Donald Trump will be our next president. Canada might want to start building their own wall. Donald Trump was on 60 Minutes last night. I passed. I mean, watching Trump on anything with a countdown clock hits a little too close to home for me. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey says that she believes hope is still alive after the election, which is easy to say while you're making origami swans out of $100 bills. <laughs> now, I know that you go online and you, you read up on what's going on with the presidential elections. Donald Trump was proclaimed the winner of 2016. There have been a lot of protests sprouting up in pockets around the country. Now, an online petition has been started asking for Electoral College to, to withhold their support for Trump, something granted to them in the Constitution. A lot of people don't realize this. Though Clinton leads the popular vote by about 300,000 as of last Thursday, Trump has won the minimum of 270 electoral votes necessary to become president. He has 290, Clinton has 228. According to the Constitution, Dave, electors will meet in their respective state capitals December 19th, and in most cases, whoever wins the popular vote gains all of the state's electoral votes. Now, the number of electoral votes per state is determined by the number of congressional districts plus one for each senator, a total of 538 votes. But as the New York Times pointed out, there is nothing in the Constitution that would prevent any of the electors from refusing to support the candidate who won their state or from abstaining. They, they are dubbed the fateless elector through 29 states ban uh, that practice, even though it does exist. And, and they could actually go against Donald Trump and Hillary could be named the president after December 19th. Now, the Times says 
fateless electors have never affected the final result of any presidential election, and there haven't been many in modern times. The last time it was even done was in 2004 when an anonymous elector in Minnesota cast his vote for John Edwards instead of Democratic candidate John Kerry. The foundation for the petition is the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, something that Trump himself has complained about in the past. In 2012, you might remember this, it's making some kind of headlines now that after Barack Obama defeated Mitt Romney, Trump tweeted on the matter, and this is in quotes, he lost the popular vote by a lot and won the election. We should have a revolution in this country. That tweet... There was a series of tweets by Trump on that day in 2012. But, Dave, you talk about this electoral possibly meeting and changing the outcome of the election last Tuesday, but I don't hear Hillary Clinton complaining about it or protesting, nor... President Obama, they're I, right. They're not. They're not complaining, but and especially not Obama. Right. But they very well could be doing some things behind okay. the scenes to make sure that uh, there's a possibility that she could get those votes. So the slightest misstep right now, and this is the reason why I think Trump is acting really cool. So don't expect to hear much from mm-hmm. him until about Christmas. But and you know what they say: it's never over until the fat lady is shamed by Donald Trump. <laughs> A Bloomberg article reveals that Donald Trump's grandfather made his fortune running a brothel in Canada during the gold rush. That's right. Before Trump was working with Chinese steel, his grandpa was working with Canadian wood. (laughs) Now, look, the newspaper, the Ku Klux Klan, has just now endorsed Donald Trump. Uh, You know them, right? They're the three-letter organization full of uptight white guys that have no business getting involved in the election. Oh, wait. Sorry. Sorry. That was the FBI. (laughs) For those keeping score, though, the KKK newspaper also says that this fall's hot fashion trend is white sheets. Again. (laughs) Usually you don't wear white after Labor Day. You don't, but... But not in this case, In this case, it's going to be a little bit different. Bernie Sanders says he'll work with Donald Trump as long as Trump's policies aren't racist, sexist, xenophobic, or anti-environment, which is kind of like saying that you'll hang out with Tara Reid as long as she doesn't get drunk, embarrassing herself, and doing anything slutty. Speaking of drugs, a new study says marijuana can weaken the heart muscles, which is just great. One more thing to be paranoid about. Leonardo DiCaprio turned 42 years of age, which is also the number of supermodels he's sleeping with to celebrate. Neil Young, one of your favorite singers, 71 guess it's pretty obvious that we can just call Neil now, putting Young at the end. Not necessarily the right thing to do. And that's a quick look at what has happened over the last uh, two weeks since episode 10. And now here we are with number 11. Let's talk about quickly the Memorial Tournament in Tucson, Arizona. It was a it was a great event. Um, the, the Tucson community here, Dave, put on a great show. We attracted Five or six of the top 16 pros in the world playing in the in a non-race event, which felt very much like a race event to those watching and playing. It was Emmett Pichot who came in kind of under the radar. Dave didn't have a good U.S. Open, lost there to Killian Carroll in two games, but looked very strong, very consistent, very steady in taking out Abraham Montijo in the quarterfinals, then Luis Moreno in two games, and dropping game one of the final against Sean Lenning before completely dominating, outscoring Sean 32-7 to in the second and third game. So Emmett now has put himself back in that discussion, particularly in this wide-open race season. And as you said in the open, Dave, five of the last seven race stops have been won by five different players, Paul Brady winning three, four players winning one. Mondo Ortiz, Killian Carroll, Sean Lenning, and Robbie McCarthy. Emmett Bichotte now looks to put his name on that list 
as becoming a potential favorite to become a six guy to win a race stop in what will be eight events as we approach Minnesota. I love Dave personally. Drift Fernandez, Coach Richie Fernandez from Juarez, Mexico, being honored as the WPH Junior Coach of the Year. Very, very deserving, incredible guy, Dave, as you know. Coaches multiple clinics each week, 30 to 40 kids in his classes each week. The kids are loving it. He also organizes the travel team for Junior WPH Juarez, bringing up to 12 to 15 kids to events with the support of the Juarez handball community. Coach Richie uh, often driving three or four of those kids himself. And you'll see him, Dave. He's a very good player, and he's also chaperoning and coaching throughout the weekend. And then we had the Battle of the Border 3, which is Junior WPH Juarez taking on Tucson's Fred Lewis Foundation. The first two Battles of the Border, Dave, won by FLF. This time it was Junior WPH Juarez almost sweeping that Battle of the Border, winning four matches to one. Very exciting stuff, and I think it shows just what great work Coach Fernandez is doing coaching those kids up. They're so much better than the last time we saw them, and every time we see those kids, they're getting better. Dave, I know that you really love the Memorial Presentation Tournament Director. Scott Cleveland takes a lot of ownership and pride in running the Memorial, and he hosted a a really nice and touching tribute to those that we've lost in between semifinal matches of the Pro Singles Saturday night at the Memorial. That was a great, great moment for handball. It was a fun tournament to be a part of. Uh, not having to do live broadcasting was also kind of fun, just hanging out with the group and being there in the front row. Got a little rowdy there on the back wall. From the fans' perspective, absolutely fun. It's cool to have that sort of atmosphere mm. where the players are beating on the glass and really getting into it. They even tried, they attempted to do the wave, which uh, it failed completely <laughs> when somebody spilled over a uh, some of their favorite spirits or whatever you want to call that all over an uh, older lady's lap. But that was also fun in its right. own right. The The neat thing about that tournament, you're talking about uh, Richie Drift Fernandez, Diego, I like to call mm-hmm. him. He has about six different names, yeah. so whatever you want to do. Was that moment there on, I believe, Saturday when all the kids were in that court number one and they were having that, that competition and it became very loud and uh, it was organic, natural. Everybody had eye guards on. It was a fun moment because it, it drew away from the pros that were playing on the court at the time. I believe uh, Sean Lenning just defeated Emmett Pichot in game number one, and it was about ready to get into game number two, and everybody went over and watched these kids, and about 25 or so were mm-hmm. on the court. Dave, you were in there. Yeah. Richie was in there. I, I, I was there you know, taking pictures, and it was just a very fun environment. And that kind of goes with, I think, the whole package of Drift and how he put together his team. And, and they're so disciplined, but they also have fun. Right. And it made you kind of remember when you were a kid and, you know, just how fun the sport really is and, and why that social. I don't know if you want to compare it to the, the fans are out having their own show, social experiment yeah. <laughs> and experience out there near the glass. But yet inside, the kids are having their own social time. And it wasn't just the Juarez kids. It was a mixture of Tucson and those right. from all around that uh, were in that court. It was fun. Well, Dave, Drift is the ultimate, what I would call, player's coach. He's not sort of this disciplinarian sergeant style. He's the kind of guy that almost seems like he's one of the players, yet all the players, all of his players respect him so much. So that's the best kind of coach because he's a friend of the players, but they also know that he's in charge and he's the guy that's organizing everything. So if you're going to pick a coach and the players could go out and pick a coach, and I think this would go for any league, the NFL or the NBA, they would want a guy like Drift who they know has their back but also knows how to lead. If you're in the great American Southwest and you're having a tournament, you want some kids to be involved, get a hold of us if you don't know how to get a hold of Drift. Mm -hmm. And 
See if you can make a connection and get his group to come up to yours. It actually gives you that feel that you're at a tournament where you don't necessarily know everybody, but you, the people that are there participating are having one heck of a great time and they're all positive. Uh, do contact us because we can get you hooked up with Drift and his group, and they have a big group. They, they could, if they wanted to, bring 40 to every tournament. And I know that they're going to come back to Tucson in some capacity for the Junior Nationals, mm. which happens just after Christmas. Go online to right, r2sports.com okay. or get a hold of the USHA yeah. at handball at ushandball.org. Okay. And you can make the connection there as well with the Junior Nationals. Now, Will there be glass pounding at the Junior Nationals, I, do you predict? I, I don't know. I mean, if you kind of compare this fragile mentality of the pro player and a junior player i think the juniors could probably handle it a little bit better <laughs> I, I think the major problem with the glass pounding is when you're a pro player you know what's a great shot and what's not a great shot and you see a lot of glass pounding for balls that aren't great shots you see slight miss hits and a pro knows that and dave you know having played pro handball you know the difference between a great shot and a shot that was slightly off or slightly missed or maybe a ball that hit a crotch when it shouldn't have and then you hear that glass pounding and it's just it's infuriating but if it's a great shot and you hear the glass pounding it's okay but the problem is is that not everyone in the crowd knows exactly what is a great shot you know they see a ball that's that a pro player doesn't get to it and they assume that well that was a great shot not necessarily that's true but what i witnessed was there were what they would call a great rally okay Mm -hmm. so players you know you were playing you slid down to one knee and popped the ball down the left and on the run sean lenny did one of his notorious like little flips up front and you dove back up front and barely missed it and what sean did was miss hit his shot you know and so then there was pounding on the glass and then you turn around and say what are you pounding for you miss hit that but what they were pounding for is the actual rally that Mm, they saw and they just want to see that good play it wouldn't have mattered who won the point it was the fact that they were being entertained and they're kind of giving you back a little nod. But mm. I can understand it from that other standpoint because as a fan, loved it, absolutely. Mm. As a player, I'm not sure I would, but if I was winning, I don't think it would matter. But, I mean, I'm being hypocritical because I did watch the Emmett Fischote-Luis Moreno match from the front row and I was enjoying mm-hmm. the glass pounding. But 20 minutes before that, inside <laughs> not, the court. Not so much. No. But that was a fun one nonetheless. Uh, quick discussion on some of the things happening outside of the United States. Martin Kearns, Dave, who's now living in New Zealand temporarily, he's researching for farming. As you know, Dave, he just graduated from college, made the short flight about three hours to Melbourne. I know you've made that flight, Dave, from Auckland to yep. Melbourne yourself. Competed in the Australian One Wall Nationals. Very, very tough draw there. He drew a good friend of yours, Dylan King, in the quarterfinals, pushed to a tiebreaker, winning that match. Dylan Key, an adapted three-wall star in Australia, who's now making his mark as a one-wall star. Then he faced his countryman, Rory Kelly, who lives in Melbourne now, defeated him in two games, and then took out the defending champion in two games in the final. So for Mark Mulkerns, he's the All-Ireland one-wall ball champion, and he's also the Australian one-wall national champion. That's cool. Nice thing. I mean, and also maybe he could even... You know, apply for the cast of uh, the next Lord of the Rings film. Mm. I mean, since they do film there in New Zealand. And Dave, I know that you track everything. Martin Mulkerns trending more likes and more comments on his win in Australia than anything we've had this entire year. So it tells you just the scope of Martin Mulkerns and the popularity. And wherever he goes... It's he becomes the instant favorite. And as soon as he walks off the plane, there's just an energy about him, and everyone feels it. 
and uh, you know he's uh, you want to have him at every tournament because he's the greatest. Well, he's a superstar, and yeah. he does look like a cast member of Lord <laughs> of the Rings, so it does work out perfect. Mimo Polaris is also grabbing a couple headlines as of late. What is he doing? Texas State Championships in Austin. It was Mimo Polaris taking on Adam Bernhard in the finals there. Now they're they're sparring partners, Dave. They play once a week in Austin. They both live in Austin. They find themselves playing in the finals of a lot of these events. Polaris came in as the number one seed. Adam Bernhard was unable to play in the last three or four events that they held in Texas due to other commitments, uh, other tournaments. Mimo Polaris about, and I don't want to say this wrong, but about a two and fifteen lifetime record against Adam Bernhard in tournaments. Defeats Adam in two games there in that final in Austin. Two very close games. Mimo actually taking a very big lead in the second game, 20-8. to After winning that first game, 21-19, Adam rallied to 17, but ultimately came up short. A big win there for Mimo, who is now the Texas state champion. Very big title there. And you know a lot of great players have won that championship, including Hall of Famer, our good friend, John Bike. Alan Garner also has taken That's that trophy. One. So when you put your name up against guys like that, it's pretty good. And and, and Adam Bernhardt has won that right. uh, previously. Tyler Hamill's also mm. got his name on that list. And uh, Adam Bernhardt, a uh, really good player. I would say that he's a throwback. He's sort of a Vern Roberts style. He has that mentality of maybe a little bit of uh, Tyler Hamill, but you can certainly feel that he's grown up uh, as a historian of the game. Yeah. He understands uh, mathematics Kind of a cool guy to watch play. You've played him, been taken very, to a tiebreaker with him? Not, or close? not quite a tiebreaker, but very close matches. Close, I'm right. very, very impressed with his game. And in fact, it, Tucson 2014 saw Adam Bernhardt play Mondo Ortiz in a drop down playoff match, played him very, very close. And that goes to show you that his style can match up with anybody because you might look at Adam from the outside and say, well, he wouldn't have much of a chance against Mondo. Mondo's just hitting it so hard and so quick. But Adam's able to neutralize even a guy like Mondo, who's an offensive juggernaut. Adam Bernhardt said he would have played in Minnesota, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to switch balls. Yeah, and I, now that I don't understand. Well, and, it's, he said it takes about two weeks. I don't, I don't blame him. Mine's taken two years after I tried it. <laughs> well, uh, selfishly, I want to see him in yeah, Minnesota. Yeah, me too. So I agree. I, I was trying to talk him into it, but just couldn't get him over the hump. Yeah. And, you know, Dave, you said two weeks. Well, Adam Bernhardt was just in Springfield, Missouri for the Bear Bash just yesterday got his revenge against Mimo Polaris just one week later I mean Dave a lot of times we have to wait five ten years to get our revenge in matches like this not in this rivalry Adam Bernhard thrashes Polaris 21-5 21-3 to win that title at the Bear Bash and the match I was really looking forward to is Adam Bernhard against Nikolai Nahorniak in the semifinals. I had that one circled on my calendar all week and unfortunately they played to about a 10-all tie in the first game and Nikolai hurt his leg and really wasn't the same after that. Adam winning that first game 21-15 and Nikolai forfeiting after that first game. So disappointing in that sense because that's a matchup that, you know, I know you and I and a lot of handball fans would really love to watch. Nikolai's a two-handed shooter. Adam's got that great defensive game and, you know, that clash of styles would have been great to watch. But uh, maybe another time, but it was Adam Bernhardt who was just on a mission there in Springfield, wins that tournament easily without dropping a game. How does he come back like that and put those low scores on Mimo? Uh, well, you know, talking to Adam after that match yesterday, he said, I was really able to kill the ball this weekend, unlike last weekend, where, you know, I just couldn't put the ball down. And that really plays to Mimo's favor. You know, me, because, uh, you know, Polaris is a rallying type of player, as you know, very good player. And if you get him into these long rallies, he has the advantage. But Adam said, this time I was just able to find the bottom board. And you know how it is, Dave, as a player. Sometimes you can find it and other times you can't. You don't know why. It feels the same. But, you know, Adam's timing maybe a little bit better, maybe that 
getting that tournament under his belt, you know, helping get him into his rhythm. And, you know, it's a totally different result. Now, remember, Polaris went to two very long tiebreakers in the quarterfinals and semifinals leading up to the final at the Bear Bash. Also, tiebreakers in the doubles. Adam not playing in the doubles. Now, I'm not making excuses, but that's another possible reason why we see Polaris going from winning two close games to getting blown out the very next week by the same player. That's why you see a lot of players, Paul Brady would do it in the past, where you just enter one division and focus on your goal. Or enter tag team only doubles. (laughs) Right. Uh, We're going to take a break. We have uh, a big preview of Minnesota coming up right around the corner. Also, Dave, yes or BS? A new Mm. segment. We'll have it next. It's episode 11, the Dave and Dave radio handball cast here on TuneIn Radio. The WPH $200,000 Race for Eight Professional Handball Tour is back. Top handball players, qualifiers, senior 40-plus men, and women's elite will participate alongside amateurs, age division, juniors, and skill-level players at multiple stops beginning in October of 2016, running through April of 17. From the Simple Green U.S. Open of handball through Salt Lake City's Players' Championship, The WPH Live TV Film Crew will be airing matches on ESPN3 and the Watch ESPN app with hopes you come out and play or help promote this amazing game by sharing each event's broadcast schedule. To gather the full schedule, go to www.wphlive.tv and use your tabs. Select Elite Handball and then click the schedule, news, rankings, and more. Come join the WPH on the courts this season. WPHlive.tv presents the Dave and Dave Sports Radio Cast on TuneIn Radio. Are you ready? It's Radio Cast number 11 with Dave and Dave as we get ready for Minnesota. And yes or BS, it's time for yes or BS, Dave. We give you a statement and you decide yes, it's true or no, it's totally BS. It's been a long election, so we're not going to do election facts this time around. The topic is random feel-good facts that can't possibly stress you out. Never done well on feel-good facts. A group of pugs is called a grumble. Is it yes or is it BS? A group of pugs is known as a grumble. Yes. Yes. Also, a group of rabbits is called a fluffle. Mm. Did you know that? A group of bats is called a cloud. That's a cloud of bats we got over there. A group of butterflies called a flutter. Okay. I can see that. A group of flamingos is called a flamboyance of flamingos. I didn't know that. The Beatles used the word love just under 500 times in the titles of all of their songs. Yes or BS? Yes. Use, use the word love under 500 times. You say yes. No, it's BS. What? I, I, don't, I didn't understand the question. Well, it's BS. Mm. They used it 613 times in their song titles. The word they used most was you 2,262 times. Just in the titles. Yeah. How many songs? They have a songbook that you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Beatles oh. produced a ton of tunes. The first number spelled with a letter A in the English language is 1,000. Yes or BS? No internet. No Google. The first number spelled with a letter A in the English language is 1,000. Yes or BS? Five. Four. Yes. Yes, you're right. 
I feel like I'm. One. I feel like I'm three for three. I didn't understand the second question, but I see that you're not. There's no appeals. No, judge no, it here. has to be quick because I know that you're over there typing. I don't want any typing on well, the. No, internet. the typing wasn't the problem. I just didn't understand the question. None of the numbers before have an A in them, and the first number with a B is one billion. Lobsters mate for life. Yes or BS? They mate for life. Yep. Once you have the relationship with another lobster, you stick with that lobster. BS. BS. It's actually a myth, but there's a lot of people that say that that's true. Uh, A lot of animals do mate for life, including seahorses, bald eagles, swans, coyotes also do. Mm. The people who voice Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse got married in real life. Yes or BS? It's a tough one, isn't it? BS. No, it's true. <clears throat> yeah, that's a yes. Wayne, no excuses on that one. Rain, Wayne uh, Alwine was the voice of Mickey from 1977 to 2009. Russie Taylor had been the voice of Minnie since 1986. They got married in 1991, believe it or not. So that is yes or BS. As a side note, though, I remember that, um, that Mickey divorced Minnie. Because she was effing goofy. Um, where are we at now? It's the Minnesota stop. Yeah, it's coming up this next weekend. Or I should say this weekend. We're just a couple days away. I think I'm boarding a plane tomorrow, in fact. Mm. And yet I'm asking you when it is. That tells you <laughs> that tells you how the mind's working this week. Minnesota stop is going to come up at the University of Minnesota. It's our very first race for eight stop at the university in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Going to be a lot of fun. Like I said earlier, the kids are going to be there. Junior players, collegiate players, and there's some age division play. The 40-plus seniors and the elite pros were going to be on ESPN just Saturday and Sunday of that event. Saturday from 10 o'clock Central Time until 7 o'clock. Sunday from 10 o'clock until 1. Uh, Dave, I know you have a lot to say about this. It's the first R48 Pro Stop in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Let's talk about that just first off. I mean, the last time we were there, we were at in Fridley. Right. And that was a stop, but it wasn't race for eight. Yeah, that was about 2010 in the winter there, December. We had a, a great stop there and really looking forward to coming back to the university where we did one of our first live webcasts in 2007 at the Nationals. You remember it was Paul Brady defeating right. Sean Lenning there in the finals. Really good match there, and that's an amazing facility with great viewing. We broadcasted from Minnesota at the Nationals, I believe it was 2013, uh, where it was Paul Brady defeating Emmett Pichot, 2014, I think. Um, it's going to be a great one, and looking forward to seeing former Elite Eight superstar Andy Nett, who's a, a three-sport star in Minnesota, Dave, All-American football player and basketball player, and of course a, an Elite Eight handball pro. He'll be making his first race for eight start since the NYC of 2015. Now, he did start at the U.S. Open but this is a, a race freight event with a qualifier. So it's his first race freight proper start with the qualifier. And last time he qualified, he went all the way to the finals, becoming one of just six players to do so. I believe this is Andy Nett's first start as a father, as he and his lovely wife, Bailey Chandler Nett, have given birth to a beautiful baby girl. So, you know, Andy Nett is going to have a, an advantage having his family there supporting him. Also, this is his home club. So he's going to be able to sleep in his own bed, go through his usual routine. And that makes a guy dangerous, particularly facing guys that are getting off a plane and scrambling to find hotel rooms. Uh, uh, he was dangerous in, in New York right. a few years ago. And this actually is one of those categories where when we go to these stops, you say, okay, which one of the qualifiers can make it to the semifinals? 
you have to just say Andy's that guy. I mean, he's obviously in this draw. He's the one that could do it. Vic Perez is another one. But Andy startled us all in a positive way in New York when he made it to the finals, and he had a very good run at it. Uh, he had to go through a Pacho, I mean, excuse me, a, a Lenin and a, a and a Moreno right. on his way there, plus a guy that defeated you. Uh, in order to get there, that was a that was a pretty good Cinderella story for Andy Nett. And will he be able to repeat it? Is there more pressures when you're playing in front of those that think that you're invincible, that think that you're Superman, and you then have to go against players that might be just slightly better than you? Is there pressure there? Well, I, I think it depends on the person. I think some people would spin that into a positive. We've seen guys play at their home club, like Emmett Pichot at the Olympic Club, have one of his best race events in more than 30 starts. He went to the finals there in San Francisco. So that certainly worked to his favor. Now, you take a guy like Luis Moreno, he seems to play quite a bit worse at his home club in Tucson. So you look at two different guys. Emmett seems to feed off the crowd. Luis Moreno, I think, likes to fly a little bit more under the radar, just sort of come in. Um, you know, doing his own thing without the extra attention of the home crowd. Right, and you can't do that at home if you're right. Luis, but you could do it in Minnesota if right. you're Luis. And Andy, it yes seems like he has the right personality for this. So we've seen him have good matches there. I remember that year that you and I did our very first broadcast together, which was 2007. I remember Andy was, a lot of people were following him around. I'm not saying he had a Cinderella story there, but people were saying, you have to watch his Andy Nett. And when we did watch him, he was pretty good. And right. That was really our first time of uh, of seeing him down. Dave, you went through the juniors, and, and he was a little bit younger than you, obviously. But you recall seeing him back then and knew how good he was. But for a lot of us, that was a, kind of our first exposure to how good Andy Nett could be. Right. I think Andy and I played 1991 in the 13 and under and I think he would have been maybe 11 at that time so he was a couple years still is a couple years younger than me but very very good player then then didn't hear from him for about 15 or 20 years came back and you know he he took a little bit of time to get his game and then you know he seemed to really peak after advancing to so many quarterfinals and never getting to a semifinal bust down that wall after about a year away from race freight competition went all the way to the finals yeah, and one of the reasons why was a lot of people were banged up in New York, and this is no excuse or not putting down anything that happened to Andy, but it does tell you that Andy, who came in very fresh there in New York, it was just like a, on a different level. And I believe he's also fresh now as he heads into this tournament. He's, I expect something really good out of mm. Andy Nett. Uh, Armando Ortiz, let's talk about him. He nabs number one. He's not the true number one. He's tied with Sean Lenny statistically at number one flip of a coin determine who will be the number one seed but is this one of those moments as a player that you take the rankings that are posted on the internet and you put them in a frame and you put it up on the wall and say i was number one uh, i mean i wouldn't disparage mondo for doing that i mean he's earned the right to be the number one seed now you said that they're co-number ones but technically paul brady's still ranked number one but is there official word that he won't be playing this year is he retired well i mean he sent that email and it right. really it really did say that i'm i'm not looking to play this year and but there, it the door like wasn't completely closed i didn't feel he's I mean, saying i'm just searching for some hunger and you yeah. know it's i know it's a whole different topic but just as you read it it's sort of like i'm not playing don't bug me and ask me to play i'm i'm out okay and i did get that feel and that is sort of like I'm retired until yeah. I tell you I'm not. Okay. And now, if he was anything like Nadia Alvarado Jr., he's had more farewell tours than Cher. Mm. <laughs> I would think that perhaps the door is not slammed shut with Paul Brady. I, I think that whatever we say right now could piss off Paul just yeah. enough that he's not going to completely retire. Yeah. So 
but still, number one, uh, uh, at least ranked number one, you would say I would take that bracket and post it on the wall okay. and say, look, I was number one here right. and stopped number two. Now, Mondo said, nah, don't like it. Mm. I, I'm not. That's not the way I want to do it. I want to be clear-cut number one. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the right perspective, but uh, if you have anything else on that, um, you know, he deserves it. And I think it does show that a guy who has had struggles off the field, comes onto the field, he dedicates himself uh, and applies himself, he really is becoming a crowd favorite. Sort of the sort of the feeling that we used to get when we would look at um, uh, Luis Moreno a few years ago. Mondo Ortiz has kind of taken that, that banner away in, in a lot of ways, I think. Now, Mondo Ortiz has been a very dangerous player, I believe, since 2008, Dave, when a lot of people didn't really know him. He had the, you know, the terrible heart condition in about 2010 he came back and now he seems to be really motivated for every match whereas before maybe uh, there were certain tournaments he wasn't necessarily up for but now you know you've seen every match he's played so much heart and you know you think back to the very last tournament playing Killian Carroll on that great tiebreaker that was I think the best match of the tournament indoors at least 11-8 tiebreaker win for Mondo Ortiz and both guys really wanted it there and it was Mondo coming away with that win. And that's what enabled him, Dave, to take this number one seed, that and the coin flip. That coin flip was kind of cool with Timothy yeah. Gonzalez flipping with uh, Sean Lenning. They both seemed to be very cordial about it. And uh, it was a fun environment with Sean Lenning taking the number two seed in Minnesota. Five different race for eight winners in the last seven race for eight events. That's the first time in history. We had a lot of consistency in the first couple years. And then Paul Brady came right. and made it like a, like a flat line of con- mm-hmm. consistency. And now we're seeing, uh, not just because of Brady being out, it's what led to Brady being out in a lot of ways. Brady started losing, right? and then Brady didn't show up for one. Mm-hmm. And, and now we've got, if you look back, Lenny, Ortiz, Brady, Carroll, McCarthy, five different winners in seven different starts. And we predicted before this started with our radio cast just a, a few months back that we were going to see about eight. Now... Can that still happen? Can we have three more different winners? Is it possible? It would not surprise me at all. Like you said, Dave, nine of the first 17 race for eight events through the first two and a half seasons were won by Luis Moreno. So you know there that there was there was not more than five winners and seven stops. And then Paul Brady came along 55-3 and three wow. record on the race for eight tour, 13 titles, only three losses. Two of those losses to Killian Carroll including the last one, which was his last race for eight match. Now, we're not going to say ever, but we're going to say it was the last race for eight match that he played, the semifinals in Portland. Now we've got real parity, Dave, and I know that the NFL loves this, but, you know, Robbie McCarthy, I think, is the guy that you have circled where if he comes to any of these events, and I know he's playing on coming to at least two more this season, he's your favorite Oh yeah, going into these events. But, you know, you look at, you know, Lenning, Ortiz, Moreno, Peixote, Carroll, I mean, any of these guys that gets the hot hand has got a legitimate chance to win these titles. And I put guys just beneath them also right in that discussion. Daniel Cordova, who's playing great handball, he gets the hot hand. He's beat Luis Moreno before. He pushed Sean Lane to a very close tiebreaker there at the U.S. Open. So, I mean, I think anybody really realistically in that top eight can win one of these titles. And Andy Nett coming in as a qualifier went all the way to the finals. And it was only Brady who was able to stop him. And he won't have to deal with Brady in Minnesota. And you kind of refer back to Emma Pichot and, and you see what he's doing and you say, well, there's a chance there. Because once Emmett gets that win against Sean Lenning, even if Sean was uh, ailing just a little bit with shin splints, 
it it's still a mental thing where you say to yourself, I, I was able to to carry through with it. I I passed through a mental barrier that I've had with Sean. And I also get the feeling, that taste of uh, winning, which is a which is a cool taste. It kind of refocuses you in a way. It gives you that control alt delete and says, I, I did this the and, and also he slammed in, in the yeah. process. Well, I think when it comes to that rivalry, there's not much of that I got over the hump. I think no matter how many times one of them loses to the other, he expects to win the next time they play. And there's kind of a dismissiveness about both of them, how they look at one another's you know, games. They've played since they were 15. And, you know, we don't have the official lifetime record if you go all the way back to the juniors. But you'd have to say it's about 32 and 32, somewhere in that range. Now, one might say he has a lead over the other, but regardless, it's very close. Yeah, I, I and we've say... seen both of them win five matches in a row from time to time, and then we've seen them split, go back and forth. And this has been happening since you know since they started playing in the pro. Yeah, if I were to guess, Sean Lenning has the edge by maybe two matches. If mm-hmm. I were just to guess and say okay. this is my guess, you can give me the real facts if yeah. you want. I would say Sean has him, but with that said. There was a time there where it just felt like every other tournament was the other one winning. And um, they would play each other seemingly in the finals of every tournament. Um, Sean Lenning, not healthy completely, but he left Tucson a couple weeks back, went right to L.A., staying with Marco Chavez, playing two-on-one there at the LAAC Mm. against um, Marcos and his brother uh, Carlos, and winning. Mm. Uh, Marcos saying, yeah, he just beat us two-on-one. Now, Marcos took Mondo Ortiz to a tiebreaker at the Players' Championship in Portland. Sean Lenning beating people two-on-one? I mean, that's that's not uncommon. But if that tells you anything, he went there for the training, regardless of the shin splints. Sean went right back on the court again. And Doctor does say, you know Doctor and what they say. Mm Mm-hmm. They say you need a little bit of rest here with those shin splints. Well, but- Sean was also playing three-wall big ball out there, a little bit of doubles. I saw him on the court with Timbo Gonzalez and Marcos and Sal Duenas. So he's played a lot of handball. And, uh, you know, those shin splints, Dave, they seem to come and go. You know, you saw Sean in the semifinals there in Tucson was amazing. And then the next day, he wasn't really himself. Well, he was himself for the first 21 points. Mm. Uh, I think he defeated Emmett 21-11, to 21-13, yeah. something like that. And it looked like, well, this is going to be a two-game win for Sean. And then all of a sudden, he's laying down on the ground, um, stretching his legs, trying to work out some kind of kink that he has in his, in his shin. Yeah, I never saw Sean really in full flight in that final at all. I think Emmett started very slowly in that first game. They were both kind of slow. And then eventually it was Sean who just couldn't really move and Emmett executing in that second and third game. Well, regardless of all that, we have a lot of different winners uh, as we look at the race rate season number six. And I I presume that if I look at the list of Lenning or if Lenning and Ortiz do not win Minnesota, we're going to have a sixth out of eight events with with a new winner. And I think it's quite plausible that we actually have someone besides Lenin and Ortiz because both of them seem to be somewhat ailing at this moment with Ortiz having a little bit of an elbow inflammation after his last practice. So who knows? And also Killian Carroll, we should have led the show off Mm -hmm. with this, who I think is probably the most dangerous besides Sean Lenin when they're on. Killian Carroll's not making this trip. He was in the draw, and uh, he was in practice himself and had some shoulder tightness in his right shoulder. And he said, I just don't think... I should make the trip and waste everybody's time. So he pulled out. Right. That's um, that's a big loss for the tournament because everyone wants to see Killian Carroll. He's the current players champion and national champion. No player wants to see a top player like Killian Carroll out, but it does open the door. 
you know, I mean, that's just another opportunity for a guy to win a title, you know, that doesn't have to go through Killian Carroll. And, you know, I think that's increases the chances of seeing another winner, uh, another, you know, adding to that five of seven, a six different winner potentially in eight stops. Let's take a look and jump over the matchups in the actual round of eight for the elite pros and just look at the qualifiers quickly because what happens in the qualifiers will determine how those matchups are going to work out in the in the elite eight. Uh, the top guys in the qualifier, if we're just going to look at the seeds, we have Vic Perez. Mm-hmm. We have John Iglesias who moved up into right. the elite so eight. So John is not in the qualifier. Right. So he's out of that. Marco Chavez, Anthony Celesto, Shorty Ruiz. Uh, Carlos Chavez, mm-hmm. Marcos's brother, he's a multiple-time qualifier with us. And uh, Andy Nett, we've talked about. Dalton Beals, sort of a black horse. A lot of mm-hmm. people don't realize how good... He didn't play in the collegiates, right. so he didn't tour the country. And a lot of these youngsters that are going to be at Minnesota don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. You and I do. Yeah. I know him from the old days because I, I'm from Oregon, so I right. saw him when he was seven years old. Uh, grew up in that family with um, with his father, Sean Beal. Dalton is the son. And then Tyler Stoffel is one of those guys that could also come in. And it looks as if, just the way the draws work, Tyler Stoffel would be playing Carlos Chavez. Mm. And that might be one of the matches of the tournament. Yeah, that'll be a great match. And I do predict that we'll see at least two first-time qualifiers in this qualifier. I think you know the top three qualifiers, who I would consider the top three, regardless of the ranking, Vic Perez, Marcos Chavez, and Andy Nett, I see them getting through. And the other five matches, Dave, I really see going either way. Anthony Celesto had a great year last year, but he hurt his knee in Salt Lake City. He had surgery over the summer, and this will be his first start, his first tournament action since that surgery. So he hasn't played in a tournament since April, which is tough enough in itself. But then coming in off a of surgery on top of not playing, it's going to be challenging. But, you know, Anthony always seems to rise to the occasion. He's had some very tough qualifier matches. He's had great comebacks in the qualifiers, and he always seems to make it through those qualifiers. There's very few times you can say he was upset in a qualifier. Kevin Kopchuk being one of those few times in New York two or three years ago. Uh, Tyler Stoffel, Dave, I saw play for the first time in Austin at the Nationals 2011. Getting lost here in the years, but he was probably about 14 or 13 then. Great, great player then. And I'm really impressed by his game. He did lose to Shorty Ruiz last year in Tucson in the qualifier, but another year of of great play. And I know he's he's training hard at Minnesota State, um, and he's going to be dangerous. And and it, something about that too, when you go into the collegiates and you have that whole support of your mm-hmm. your group, and, and Minnesota State is obviously going to have a ton of players there right. rooting him on. And I, I think he also, and you saw this with Danny Cordova when he went to his college, he his game gathered some steam because this game's a lot about the mental part of it and when you have that mental edge of saying hey i'm the top dog on my team i'm the guy yeah uh you don't you you start focusing a little bit more on the game you start scheming when you're in classes you think about ceiling shots and setting up your player to make Mm -hmm. bad shots that sort of thing just happens naturally and i think that's going to be obviously whatever tyler does is going to be a great match um but I know you had more to say about this, but Shorty Ruiz also playing pretty good, according to Marco Chavez. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, because of the injury with Anthony Celesto, because we haven't seen Carlos Chavez mm-hmm. play, uh, Shorty Ruiz has won some. He's also lost some. We haven't seen Tyler Stoffel qualify before he didn't have a great showing in tucson when he was here last but he was also a couple years younger and then you have uh, dalton beal who did qualify one time we expected him this should have been his fourth or fifth qualifier but 
now he's going to come out and does he have a different air about himself too? Well, in the last two starts, Dalton Beal defeated Stephen Cooney in Portland. Stephen Cooney was the number one seed in that qualifier there, takes him out. In the U.S. Open last month, he defeats Abraham Montijo in a very close tiebreaker. So those are two very quality wins for Dalton Beal, who come into Minnesota seeking his third straight round of 16. And he's had, you know, two great wins to get there, Stephen Cooney and Abraham Montijo. And think of it, stop at Abraham real right. quick. He's also in this draw. Right. And I was going to mention him. Abraham coming off that loss to Dalton Beal at the U.S. Open, also tweaking his left shoulder on match point against Emmett in Memorial two weeks ago. So he's been rehabbing, trying to get himself ready, and he's declared himself ready. So he's also in this draw. And, you know, Abraham is a very solid, steady performer on the tour. But coming in with a with a sore shoulder, that throws a wrench into those plans for him and also gives an opportunity to whoever he's going to draw in that qualifier final. Okay, we'll have those draws coming out. If they're not already out by the time we do this, somebody else might have already hit the button, but you're going to see them shortly, and it's going to be very heated and fun. We're not filming the qualifiers. We do it a little different. I call it, you know, qualifiers on, on you know, with turbo because we get right down there with the clipboard, and there's it's very interactive and more positive. And I know a lot of these facilities don't understand how that is done. They think everything needs to be ran through the tournament desk. We do it right on the floor. And it connects us with the pros and the qualifiers. It's it's pretty exciting stuff. We'll try to capture some video so you can get the feel of it, but also go on to social media because I know there, there'll be some live streaming and other things like that. That'll be Friday, November 19th, starting at 9 in the morning. Right. And this, just the atmosphere. If you're in Minnesota, come down and just kind of check out that that feel there, Dave. I know that's one of your favorites. As we I look then from that qualifier and assuming that the top eight seeds hold true, then let's look at Mondo Ortiz is the number one seed in the quarterfinals if it were to all go out this way because we're advancing past that round of 16. Mm-hmm. John Iglesias versus Mondo. Interesting matchup. Uh, well, the last time they played was in New Orleans about 10 months ago, and Mondo just blew Jonathan off the court in about 15 minutes. Not a good performance there for Jonathan. But if you go back to 2012, first time they played, Jonathan Iglesias defeated Mondo Ortiz. So he does have a win against him. That's LFC with John Iglesias right. versus Mo State. And also, yeah. uh, not in the qualifier, Stephen Cooney predicts John Iglesias is going to go to that uh, semifinal. Now, I know that has nothing to do with our radio show, mm. but I'm just throwing it okay. out there. That means that somebody out there believes yeah. in John Iglesias. And, and it very well could be true. Let's just say they make it that far and they face each other in the quarters with Mondo having a little bit of issues with his right uh, elbow or left, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, there could be something there. John did not particularly look good in Tucson, but sometimes having that humbling experience will catapult you and get you focused again. Mm. Well, you know, Jonathan has that kind of game where, you know, he, when he's on, he's dangerous against everybody. And we've seen that. We've seen him taking down Sean Lenning and Luis Moreno in the same tournament. You know, pushed Emmett Pichot to an 11-8 tiebreaker there at the U.S. Open. That's not a match that a lot of people know about, but it was a good one. And, you know, Jonathan has that unorthodox game, and when he's hitting his shots, very tough to beat. Uh, also in the upper bracket, it's four and five seeds. Luis Moreno and Dave Fink, you're, yours truly here, mm-hmm. sitting across from me in that Adam Levine white T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, no, th- no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for, uh, you know, I dressed up with a suit and tie today. Yeah, thinking I think this that. is an important thing. Didn't mm-hmm. it dawned on me that this is just radio. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why, but uh, how do you feel about that matchup? I know this is always awkward to talk about yourself, but you've had injuries. Luis has had um, 
trips to Mexico mm-hmm. and not playing a lot of handball. He seems like he's gained about 20 pounds, maybe a little bit more. But with that said, he still took Paul Brady to a tiebreaker at the Nationals. He was one point away from pushing, you know, Robbie McCarthy to a tiebreaker, even though that was game number one. Mm. But, you know, maybe even potentially a loss there at the U.S. Open. He is obviously dangerous when he's focused. Has he had time to focus since Tucson? We don't know. But all we do know is how you feel. And you haven't always matched up great against him, but you've always put on pretty good shows against him and had opportunities to win against him. It just hasn't always happened that way. Yeah, I mean, we've probably played 15 times in tournaments, and I've never won. So, um, on paper, not a great it's matchup It's a good streak, me. though. That's yeah. a streak that... That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a pretty damn good streak. Yeah, we've had some 11-10 tiebreakers. I've yeah. played them 190 times. Mm. <laughs> so, there's a big old zero at the end of yeah. that. Now, it's not about me. No. But what are you going to do? Because you have had some matches where there were tiebreakers. There were some close matches. This includes three-wall. And there's always either something that goes on there at the end just can't get past that little final push against him what are you going to use when you get to that moment where you're tied at 10 in a breaker where do you where do you draw i mean because try I, to not go to a breaker yeah what, well, those, that would the, be good those little things that happen are his ace serves and his you know amazing shots so um maybe try and win in two games luis is a very clutch player and he seems to play better the closer a match gets and you know i expect him to play very well in minnesota you see great players like luis very rarely have two poor tournaments in a row. And I would consider the Memorial a poor tournament for him as well as the U.S. Open. So, well, I guess that would be two in a row, but not three in a row. Okay, so he, you're up 10 to 6 in the tiebreaker. But we played a 15. Okay, you're up to, <laughs> uh, you're up to 14. Mm-hmm. 14 to 6 in the tiebreaker. And you walk up casually. The ball's rolling toward the front mm-hmm. wall. You walk up there. You lean up to the front wall. Put your right hand on yeah. the front. Reach down with your left. You make this little pirouette spin mm-hmm. back toward the gallery and the referee yeah. and say, I voted for Trump. Mm. Maybe that's the drop of water that puts and you And then over. double fault. And then double fault. And yeah. he scores the next, you know, seven or eight points. Yeah. That's that. Mm-hmm. That's a great. We just. That was a great movie script. Yeah. No, but maybe you could do something like that. Why don't you do that one thing that is. I'm going to do this to reset my clock. Mm. This is where I start over. But today. why would I need to restart if I was up 14 to 6? Because you'll Seems... lose if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going off past history. Yeah. Okay. Maybe th- I'm just helping you. No, yeah. No, that sounds helpful. Just do something like that. Say, okay. I voted for Hillary. It'll make everybody laugh. He's yeah. not on the, you know, his right frame of mind is maybe that'll, that'll PO him off and he'll right. hit a ball on the ground. Mm. I'm just trying to help. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> Emmett Pachot versus Daniel Cordova. Is that right? Yes. And then we have Sean Lenning versus Luis Cordova. So the two Cordova brothers, if they win in the round of eight and assuming they win in the 16s, mm-hmm. they could face each other. That's never happened. If they've played in the playoffs, no brothers have ever played in the main draw against one another. Right. And so, so that that's a cool scenario. But if it doesn't happen that way, then we have a repeat of Tucson in the semis with Sean Lenning and Emmett Pichot taking a step back further from that. We still have to worry about guys like Andy Nett and uh, Marco Chavez and Vic yeah. Perez, who, by the way, is also playing awesome. Uh, what do you think out of that Emmett Pichot danny Cordova match? I find that one to be intriguing. Well, it, early in their rivalries, Emmett Pichot just taking Daniel to the woodshed. 15-1, to 15-2. to two, Seemed like every time they played three or four times, Daniel unable to get past five points. And then they had that match at the Washington Athletic Club at the pre-race kickoff in 2015. Daniel taking him to a tiebreaker and that seemed to kind of turn the rivalry into more 
of an even ground as opposed to these Peugeot blowouts. They played a great match in the fifth place playoffs in New York in March, whereas Emma Peugeot throwing up nine times in a one game match to 25, but still winning 25 to 21. So, you know, Daniel has, has closed the gap and based on how he was playing at the U.S. Open, very aggressively with great serves. I think Daniel's a threat to beat anyone in the draw. He threw up so many times. We actually considered putting a garbage bag in inside the court. The court. Yeah. It was the rules committee voted yeah. on it. So there is like maybe a little change of the wind here, so to speak, with Danny and Emmett. He still obviously Emmett has the advantage, but right. Danny is doing things now that are different. Mm-hmm. I always felt that Emmett wasn't great at ha- handling the hop serve. I don't mean I don't think a lot of people really are, unless your last name rhymes with Chapman or Brady, mm-hmm. but. He seems to not really get along with it too well, and I think if Danny is comfortable enough, he could get some manufactured points off of that serve. Not necessarily aces, but whatever Emmett throws up next. And I and I noticed that with Danny at the U.S. Open, playing you, actually, but also other players, that when his serve is working, his first strike is pretty dangerous. Right, and it puts you in the right frame of mind. When you're getting off with that great first serve, you're in the frame of mind to attack. And you know this, Dave, being a great server yourself, when that serve goes off a little bit, now all of a sudden you, you're not thinking aggressively. You're not thinking about offense. A lot of times because you're not getting offensive opportunities. But even when you get them, your mind has already shifted into a kind of a rallying. How can I keep myself in this rally after hitting poor serves? And that's why I really think that the serve is the key to the match. For If you look at everyone in the top six, they all have great serves. And they really feed off of those great serves. And without them, you see their level really decline quickly. Right. And I, I think that's more of a frame of mind thing. I, I remember talking to Danny in Tucson a few years back. I said to him, what you need to do now, this is the best advice I could ever give you, is learn what your brother does, that Marco Chavez or the Alan Garner underhand flop-in serve, because that will that will be your go-to because you'll find that you'll be able to manufacture points off that when your hop serve isn't working. Mm. You need to go to that that thing. You can't rely too much on that that great serve and that first strike go with this other thing for a while in practice and learn how to first strike on a on a lob serve because then now it'll get your mindset that hey this this hop isn't working but then the hop will come back later in the match possibly let's look at that other one sean linning luis cordova luis also having an issue with his right, right bicep but i'm sure um, i would be way you know confident that that's over now um, or, you know, he thought it was over coming to the U.S. Open. He just felt something in that first game against Cody Townsend, and he was never the same. Couldn't really swing the way he wanted after that. And, you know, prior to the U.S. Open, Luis was playing great handball, defeated Sean Lenning in two games at the Washington pre-race kickoff in September, made to the finals there where he lost to Mondo Ortiz. So he was feeling very good about his game. In fact, Dave, you remember on episode 10, I predicted Luis Cordova to beat Charlie Shanks. And right. he ended up scoring three total points in two games. So yeah, zero I'd say, and three, I think. I'd, I'd say that I might have been a little bit off on that one. But he did injure his arm there. And, you know, of course, my prediction, it still doesn't look good no matter how you say it. But, you know, if his arm is feeling good and and he does seem to match up well against Sean, they've had close matches in the past. You can remember Houston a couple of years ago. They played a very good match against one another. And, uh, you know, Luis Cordova playing great handball in the middle of last season. And now he's, it seems like he's in the top eight to stay with Paul Brady not playing. And that gives him, you know, he was on that bubble for so long, ever since he came back from 
basic training in the military. He was the youngest to ever qualify in the race tour and finished in the top eight, 21 years old in 2012. He skipped the second season. He never could get back in that top eight. He was always at number nine. And ironically, it was his brother who was holding him back from being in the top eight. And it makes life so much more difficult when in the first round you're facing Paul Brady or Luis Moreno or Sean Lenning as opposed to facing one of the qualifiers. That's a huge difference in ranking points. And if you can't break into that top eight, you know, you're basically playing for ninth place instead of playing for fifth or third or, or maybe even first. So uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for Luis, who is still very, very young, uh, believe just 25. And, you know, he's he's a dangerous player. We saw him last year defeat some really good players, Alan Garner being one of them. Um, and, you know, Luis will be dangerous. Ironically, Luis and Danny Cordova moved in together. They right. live in Georgia now. Mm-hmm. And how he hurt himself was was moving. He was right. moving some boxes and he felt a strain in his elbow. I think we've all done that. Dave, I know you haven't picked up a box in your life. Well, but why do you think I don't? Imagine, imagine, <laughs> imagine <laughs> this happening. Uh, Marco Chavez... Uh, Nadi Alvarado, it, the rivalry was bad before the U.S. Yeah. Open. It got worse afterwards. Mm-hmm. They are going to probably match up in the finals yeah. In, yeah. in case there's an injury or whatever. Who knows? But Marcos is, you know, once again, he's atop the leaderboard of the Race for Eight senior division. Nadi Alvarado, who you think on paper is probably the best player in the 40s, it, yeah. it isn't been no. handling himself that way. Well, Dave, you talked about the feel-good energy at the qualifier. You know, everyone, you know, you come down there, there's this amazing energy. You see these young guys playing. The opposite of that, right? This is the train wreck energy when it's Marco Chavez and Nadia Alvarado. And the train wreck is even more captivating in a lot of senses than that feel good. Because everyone likes to feel good, but also you can't not turn your head and stop your car and create a traffic jam when you see that train wreck. And something will happen in Minnesota. It always does. I mean, it seemed to start in earnest in Tucson at the Senior Race for Eight final there in 2014 where it was Naughty seemingly doing what he always does against Marcos, had a lead, was about to go into halftime at 15 to 10, but skipped a ball. Then all of a sudden, Marcos comes roaring back. He's fist pumping. You know, he's showboating. He ends up winning that match. And I don't think Naughty's beat him since. Four straight wins for Marcos Chavez, who now has completely dismissed Naughty as being just, you know. Another win or another loss, uh, right? It's just, I'm not even worried about, I'm not even really concerned about this match, win or lose. I mean, that's the ultimate well, to he's... have that kind of indifference. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in Minnesota, but I hope that we have a good referee. And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, but even that's not going to solve it because it's just a, a, a clash of personalities, both of whom we like, but they don't necessarily like each other. Yeah, it's one of those scenarios. You see this a lot when you're at the water cooler where you have a friend inside the office and you Mm. say, they're the greatest, but then you have this other friend that you really, really like who doesn't get along at all, like night and day difference. And each one of them comes to you and you're sort of like the end of that uh, boomerang, right? (laughs) And you you try to to talk, hey, they're not bad. They're not bad. But you could see why this guy wouldn't like this guy, but it doesn't bug you at all. It's one of these weird scenarios. Like I would say Marcos is one of my closest friends, Mm. but Naughty certainly is as well. And yet... If I said anything positive to the other guy about uh-huh. the other guy, yeah. it's the train wreck continues via text or email. Uh-huh. It's it's a really strange ordeal. Yeah. And to make it worse, a guy like me, you know, I never play practical jokes no. or anything. No. Marco Chavez goes on to ESPN and Kara Mack does a sideline uh, interview where he says, Dave, what did he say about Nadia Alvarado? Uh- I've been, I beat him three or four times in a row, so this match doesn't really mean anything to me. I'm focused on the doubles. Okay, so Nadi is also getting ready for his match, right? Right. And 
I then say to Marcos as he walks over to me, he goes, how'd you like that interview? Obviously, he's fishing for what he said about right. Naughty. I said, well, I, I thought it was great. I loved it. But Naughty was in the booth with his headset on, mm-hmm. and he slammed him down and walked away. Right. And Marcos kind of got really serious. Now, of course, Naughty didn't hear anything. Right. Naughty was in the swimming pool just mm-hmm. stretching before the match. Yeah. Then we noticed that when they were warming up, Marcos puts his arm around Naughty and walks to the front to apologize about what he said. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that never actually <laughs> right. made Naughty it didn't even know. Naughty yeah. still didn't know what the hell he was talking uh-huh. about. That's yeah. what made it more fun. Yeah. And then at the very end, with all that controversy of their finals match, yeah. uh, you would have to say that Naughty has to look back and say, this guy, you know, this guy, he's, you know, getting into my head. And Marcos kind of plays it off as if, yeah, I meant for all of that to happen the way it happened. Mm-hmm. But the reality is Marcos felt bad. Yeah. And Naughty still had no clue what he was talking about. They just don't connect. No. But here is a connection. Yeah. Los Angeles Athletic Club. Mm-hmm. Naughty Alvarado is a member, has been since 2002. Mm-hmm. Marco Chavez is probably the guy that waves the flag more of the LAAC, a member there. You have Vic Perez, who is the number one seed in the qualifier from the LAAC. Shorty Ruiz, who also is, uh, they call him like a plain member of the LAAC. Mm -hmm. He's also in the qualifier, geared up to qualify. Sean Lenning's there right now. Marco says playing at the LAAC right at this moment. Okay, And... Then you don't have to look much further than Carlos Chavez, who comes in at the about the eighth seed or seventh seed. He's geared up to play Tyler Stoffel as right. in a final, if everything holds true, from the LAAC. And I think I'm missing Mondo Ortiz, who's our number one player in the right. world right now on the tour. And he is also an LAAC member. Uh, I know you can say the same about Tucson Racket and Fitness Club as you have yours, yours truly here, Dave Fink and, and Luis Moreno and Abraham Montijo, who's geared up to qualify. Luis Moreno, who's the four seed or five seed there. And then uh, Sean Lenning, who actually is a member of the TRC. Uh, so you've, you've got kind of a battle of the clubs kind of going yeah. on here with, um, according to Marcos, the best player in the club right now is Vic Perez, and he's the number one qualifier. So mm. interesting uh, dynamics, and it kind of shows you that when you have a positive club like that that has a lot of these good players, they all seem to feed off each other if those players actually play each other. It doesn't always happen at all these yeah. clubs. Uh, that's what I have here from my end of Minnesota. I know there's going to be a junior clinic uh I know that there's obviously going to be age play and, and a lot of fun things and positive stuff going on in Minnesota. Talk about the juniors really quick, and then we have to wrap this thing up. Well, like you said, Dave, it's probably going to be the largest junior clinic we've ever had indoors. Now, outdoors, we have more space, more courts. So we've had up to 80, 85 kids at one time taking clinics. But I'm expecting close to 40 or 50 kids. We already have Emma Pichot volunteering to coach that clinic, Nadia Alvarado volunteering to coach that clinic. The kids are going to get an opportunity to play some points against these great pros after learning a couple of techniques that are going to help them improve their game and have more fun. So I'm really looking forward to that aspect of the clinic. That'll be at 1 p.m. on Saturday, just after the completion of the men's quarterfinals. In between that sort of quarterfinal and semifinal action, we'll have some senior race for in there as well. But that clinic is going to be a lot of fun and uh, I'm really excited for those kids to get to experience learning from our great players. And I, I highly expect there's going to be some impromptu stuff going on as well. So expect not just the one clinic, expect two or three or even more than that, because I think there's just so many players. Either that or when that one clinic is going on, we're going to have multiple courts being used. Much like when we were in Atlanta with the USHA Masters, mm. where we had to go take back courts and split yeah. it up. There's just so many, uh, which is actually a very great sign because I know Tommy Burnett's bringing a group over, and then oh. we have 
uh, all the universities there that are all kind of teaming up, bringing their kids. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait for it. It's all going to be aired on ESPN and the Watch ESPN app starting Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time on your Watch ESPN app. If you're a member of the WPH, if you're a flagship member, then if you're having some blackout problems on ESPN, contact us and we'll get you all hooked up so you can watch the live feed from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the university. It's going to be this weekend, November 18th, 19th, and 20th, 19th and 20th on ESPN. And on the 18th, it's going to kick off at 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday with the qualifiers. We will not film on Friday. We might do some stuff for later playback, but we will certainly start streaming on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Central Time. Dave, it wraps it up here for the radio cast. <laughs> I thought you were wrapping up. I didn't know it was a double wrap. I just thought maybe you had one, one no, last, that's it. One last thing done. to say. You'll be hearing a lot less of me at the tournament coming up. I've made a vow after listening to a lot of sports. I need to talk a lot less. So oh, on the broadcast. On the broadcast. Do I will even, be there. Do you even do broadcast anymore? I do. I'm going to make an announcement. The The final two matches. Mm-hmm. They're all yours. You're wow. doing the seniors and the, Sounds good. the elite. You know why? Wife's birthday. Wow. So last time it was the anniversary. Yeah, no, next time it's it'll be something. Next time it'll be her um Quincinetta. Yeah, no, I know. Um so get ready for that. It's yeah. gonna be a, a lot of fun. Did she hear that? Oh, talking to Spanish. There she goes. Okay. okay, let's wrap up the show. Dave, we're Thank gonna you. talk to you later. Thanks for having us. It's okay. always nice being had. Hello, had radio shows on. I'm really excited. Do we make mistakes, all of us? Absolutely. We talk sports. Come on, you can do it. Thank you for listening to Dave and Dave. On TuneIn Radio with WPH Live TV.